Welcome to the Bellway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how the show grows anyway, so that is always appreciated as well. In this week's show, we're going to do what I'm going to call an unexpected deep dive on all things COVID-19. I did not anticipate this being the show where we had to go into a lot of different things on the coronavirus, but after this week and a series of just really bad reporting by mainstream journalists, it really needs to be done because there's just so much bad reporting, particularly around vaccines, when in reality, all the news about vaccines is great. And it's really maddening to see journalists dragging these down. So I'm going to get into all of that. But to do that, I'm going to invert the normal order of the show that we've had during the pandemic. We're going to start out this week talking through the numbers on COVID-19 in the first segment. And then in the second segment, since you'll have sort of that background, I'll break down these three specific bad stories that were reported this week, all by mainstream outlets, All were either wrong or reported so poorly that everyone came away with the wrong information from them. And so I'm also going to get into why I think you're seeing some of this happening with the press, but that's sort of the overlay for this week's show. So we're going to jump right in here going right into the numbers uh, because it's going to help us really in the second segment. So... In case you're new, what we do here is we start out going through all the big top line national numbers and then go from there. So first thing you start out with is testing. So testing is up this week. It was bouncing around around 1.45 million for several weeks in a row there. And this week it's up to 1.5. So a slight tick up. And we've been in this general 1.4 to 1.5 million range for testing for a while. So this appears to be the new norm while vaccinations are spreading out. So if you remember back during the peak of this, we were seeing well over 2 million tests a day. We've seen that sort of drop off here to around the one and a half million range, if you want to think of it that way, which is fine. That seems to be a good range that allows us to pick up the spread of the virus nationwide. So the positivity rate has also nudged up as part of this test. So we had, we'd bottomed out with the positivity rate of these tests at around three and a half percent a few weeks ago. This week, we're sitting at 4.43%, so almost four and a half percent. So over the last few weeks, we've seen this number sort of edge up a little bit each week from that three and a half range all the way up to this nearly four and a half. So it's not a huge jump, but it is a significant jump and one that we have to take into account. So it's not a sign that you're seeing a massive increase nationwide, but that sort of trend upwards, even a little bit here, is something you want to keep an eye on. And because of both the increased testing numbers that we have this week and the higher positivity rate, that also means that we have more new daily cases coming in on a national level. So the seven-day average on new daily cases currently sits at 66,000 a day, which is up from a month ago when we were sitting at 53,000. So, you know, that is a sizable jump, but it is still not what I would call a concerning jump so far. Right now, you would this would see... You would call this a slight tick up, but also sort of within range of where we've been for the past really two months here. So this is sort of things staying at about normal. 
Hospitalizations have also edged back up. Two weeks ago, they sat at 35,000. This week, active hospitalizations are sitting at 39,000. So we have edged up around that number by around 4,000. Those, again, are bouncing up and down every day. It's not a clean trend. It is a general uptick, but it is not a what I would call a clean trend where you're saying, okay, this is a distinct increase. And part of that is due to because of where all of these are coming from. This is not a, a, a total increase across the board. This is really coming from a few states. As a part of that, though, ICU numbers, which are you know the worst of the worst of the hospitalization cases, those have edged up as well. Two weeks ago, we were sitting at 6,500 ICU cases, and this week, we're basically a little over 7,500. So things have gone up there as well. Again, these aren't skyrocketing up, but it is a concerning trend upwards. The good news from all of those main numbers is that deaths continue to drop. So the seven-day average on deaths currently sits at 717. That's dropped by around 200 because around two weeks ago, because last week we had the break for Christmas here on this show, but before that, we were nearing about a thousand there for a little while, and these things have finally started to fall again. So we could be witnessing a delay here where you're seeing some, you know, you're seeing a delay where you see your hospitalizations go back up, and then a few weeks later, you might see your deaths go back up. We don't really know if that's going to be the case so far. But that has been the trend in the past. So when your hospitalization numbers and ICU numbers start going up, you really have to start watching your death numbers to see if these are truly severe cases going in here and ones that we need to keep an eye on. So, But right now, everything is looking good on that front, and they are still trending downward. Now, as I hinted at earlier, these numbers are not all coming in from the general population. So during the winter surge, that was a nationwide surge all at the same time. Everybody experienced a general surge across the board. That's not true right now. So New York and New Jersey were a part of the surge in what we're seeing right now. In previous weeks, they have largely stabilized, and right now, it is really just Michigan, which is spiking. So Michigan's winter spike, when they were up with the rest of the country, they were seeing between seven to 8,000 new cases a day, and right now, that's exactly where they are again, between seven to 8,000 new cases a day in the averages. So they're, they're right now in a surge comparable to what we saw during December and January. So the seven-day average on deaths are also going up too. And generally, if you see increases right now nationally in any numbers, it is pretty easy to attribute most of this surge to be a part of Michigan's numbers. They are sending up most of the averages overall, even though you can look in a lot of states that have sort of this general little bit upswing, but not a ton. I think you are seeing that happen a little bit everywhere, or things are just remaining flat. But the true increase and the peak right now is Michigan. And there's not really a good explanation for why Michigan is the state spiking by really by itself right now. You can argue that there are some spikes potentially happening in sort of the northern Ohio range where you see Michigan and Ohio's border meet there. But in reality, Michigan is taking the brunt of this. It is really ground zero right now. And there's just not a good explanation for around it. Because when you look at sort of, you know, where the general trends are, everything has sort of followed a general seasonal trend here, where you had some northern states spike up again. You had the southern states opening up with people going outside and things like that. Those have started to, you know, go down again. You may see people, if this follows a general seasonal trend, you may see another uptick as we head into the middle of May and June, which is what happened this time last year. And that's just, you know, that's just a general trend of the virus. Vaccines could also end up impacting how fast this spreads too. So that's what we hope anyway. But in general, if you're following last year's, general trends you you know this these upticks that we saw in the northern states you'd kind of expect but michigan by itself you would not expect to be a part of that and like i said you, there are some explanations i think the you know some people pointed to variants uh, the reason that makes the most sense of me is that michigan didn't really have a spring spike last year unlike 
many of the states around it. So this could be that there are just more avenues for COVID-19 in general to spread while we're getting these vaccines out the door. It could be that. There are other states that are like that that are not spiking like Michigan. So it's not really a clean explanation, and we don't have a good idea beyond sort of these general ideas of, well, you know, maybe there's the spring thing, maybe it's a variant that's particular to them. We just don't have a good idea of why it's happening. We just know that it is because we can measure the data. So worth watching what happens up there, but we don't really have a good explanation for it. Apart from all that, though, vaccines remain the best news that you will find anywhere. Overall, the United States has administered, as of end of day Sunday, 187 million vaccination doses across the country. The seven-day average on vaccinations currently sits at 3.14 million a day, and the momentum on the vaccines charts, those continue to go up every last single day. So at that pace, we have a good chance of hitting 200 million uh, vaccination doses administered by the end of this next week. If we don't, then I would expect to hit it early next week. We're so we're going to cross that number pretty quickly. I, I think we're going to see another major spike here since you're not going to have any Eastern interference or any holiday interference here. You're going to see you know, a continuing rise in the, in the amount of people who are getting vaccinated on a weekly basis. So out of that 187 million... 119.2 million people have received at least one dose of the vaccine. This would be one dose of Pfizer or Moderna, and that's good for 36% of the overall population, 46% of the adult population, which is counted as those of 16 and above, and a staggering 79% of those aged 65 and above. All those groups have at least one dose of a vaccine in their system and are partially protected from the virus. So those are just massive numbers and massive percentages across these different population groups. So that's your partial vaccination numbers. Your fully vaccinated people, we have 72.6 million Americans fully vaccinated now. So that is good for 22% of the total population this week. We're going to likely cross the 25% marker. We have 28.1% of the adult population, if you only count that 16 and above category, and then a whopping 61.4% of those 65 and above are fully vaccinated. So threshold herd immunity is assumed to be at least around 70% with this disease. So at so, you know sitting with that that 65 and above category you know, we're, we're getting really close to hitting threshold immunity. If you look at the one-dose category, they're already sitting at close to 80%. So with your herd immunity already sitting there, it, you know, if you count that one-dose category, you're already well within it. If you count the two-dose category, we're almost in it. So the 65 and above category is becoming very, very protected, which is a very good thing because that is the group that has received really taking the brunt of this virus. That's where most of your deaths have been. That's where the worst number, you know, the worst kinds of cases have been. Just everything on and on. That's where the worst of this has been. So big things for this week. We could hit 85% of the 65 and above population with at least one vaccination. That would be a massive win on our part if we hit that. And we had we were very likely also going to cross the 50% marker for the population with one vaccine in its system. So these are massive victories all across the board. They are going to create some level of uh, you know some level of vaccinated type herd immunity type deal in the population. And if you look at Israel, they have full full vaccination for their population is sitting above 50%. It's closing in on 60%. So and that's just total population. So. We are going to start seeing some of those numbers, too, and I suspect you're going to start seeing that impact some of these case numbers here soon, because what's happening here is that the virus is running out of places to spread. The more people who get vaccinated, the more avenues that get cut off for this thing to spread. So... 
The other thing this week is that we're going to see a dip in the number of people who are going to be able to receive the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, they hit a vac- manufacturing snag in their Baltimore office factory. They had a mix-up between the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines there. They caught it, so you don't have to worry about getting a bad vaccine because they caught it by all the batch numbers and, and all the quality control measures that they, they have. So that was caught, but it did mean that we lost several million vaccination doses, and that's going to cause a slowdown in the ones that are going to be available. It's not a halt because there are, you know, we have far more than one factory with this thing, but it will slow us down. You don't want these types of things to happen. So it's going to slow us down a little bit on that front. That could impact the numbers that we see a little bit. I wouldn't anticipate it impacting us that much yet because we have about 50 million unused vaccination doses across the country right now, which is enough to keep people going for at least a little while. I mean, we're averaging 3 million a week, so we we could easily rely on that stash. So I don't tend to think like some do that this is going to be a huge impact. The where, where it will hit hardest is that it's going to push more people into a double-dose vaccine regimen instead of a single-dose Johnson & Johnson regimen. So Again, all these vaccines are good. It's just that's going to be a quirk for the next couple of weeks as we square away that manufacturing snag. If the Biden administration, though, wanted to offset this immediately, they could push to use the AstraZeneca vaccinations that we have sitting unused in warehouses right now. We have more than 20 million unused vaccination doses for AstraZeneca that the United States has bought that is at our disposal, which the Biden administration refuses to push through the regulatory front with the FDA, get it approved, and they also refuse to give it to another country right now. So those are just unused vaccination doses that should be going into arms. Those absolutely should be used. That is something that should happen, and we need to do that, but they are declining to do so. That remains, AstraZeneca overall remains a black eye for this administration. They have just frankly not done anything on this front, and it is not a good thing. They they should be moving on it, especially with these manufacturing snags, but they are not. Hopefully, they don't do the same thing when the Novavax vaccination is up for approval. Uh, we're expecting them, Novavax, to be up for regulatory approval starting on May 1st, and if they follow the Johnson & Johnson path, you would expect about a month-long approval process. Again, the Biden administration does have the leeway here to lean on and press the FDA to speed this up. But given their lack of energy on doing practically anything new on this front, they, they've practically just gone with whatever Operation Warp Speed. The only thing they've done is renamed Operation Warp Speed, but they've done everything else that was in there because they couldn't improve upon it. Everything else, it's been on the manufacturers to do it. Uh, you know, they could very seriously speed this up by, you know, using those unused doses, speeding up the Novavax stuff, but they haven't done so so far, so I'm not expecting anything on that front. So what we've got is what we've got. It's going to get us a good long way, so I'm not overly worried, but if you were treating this as the true pandemic that it was, you would think that your leadership would be all in on using any solution at its disposal. That's not happening. So again, before I wrap this intro section, I want to emphasize all the vaccination numbers are good news. I know it's very popular in the media and the chattering classes to talk about vaccine hesitation, particularly among white evangelicals, but that's just not showing up in the data. At best, you can make a case that there's more vaccine hesitancy in places like Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia, but you definitely can't make that case about older older evangelicals, especially with 61% of that group being fully vaccinated just across the country and nearly 80% with one dose. If there is a vaccine hesitancy, it's not showing up in any of these, you know, any of these numbers. And most of that, that, that talking point on that front is it's just a talking point. It's based on polls. It's not a proven fact. Journalists and pundits are focusing on poll numbers instead of the hard numbers we have on people getting vaccinated. Until we see a slowdown in vaccinations, which can be directly attributable to something like vaccine hesitancy, and, you know, with 3.1 million people a day getting a vaccine, that's a really hard sell to make. I wouldn't take this talking point very seriously. I know I don't. I'm waiting to see actual hard data. You could argue that some of this could happen in some of these southern states. Again, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, maybe some in Tennessee where I am. 
But again, you're still seeing those numbers go up pretty consistently every day as the vaccination doses are spreading out, as people are going to their doctors. All those sorts of things suggest that we are still seeing increasing numbers of people getting vaccinated. So this just looks like what it is, a talking thing among the chattering classes on Twitter, social media, and in journalism. But again, you know, you've got all these millions of people vaccinated and the numbers are going up. So until those numbers show some type of some type of slowdown, which they haven't so far, I'm reluctant to accept that as anything more than just an empty talking point. So again, I'll keep encouraging people, keep listening to the reasons on why, you know, if you encounter a person who's vaccine hesitant, just listen to the reasons, meet them where they are, talk to them about why they may be hesitant. Give them the information that goes directly to why they may have concerns. Be willing to go with them. Talk to them. If you're vaccinated, be willing to talk with them. You know, I've gotten vaccinated. I've talked with friends who have wanted to get, you know, some of them wanted to only get Johnson & Johnson. That was my initial plan to get Johnson & Johnson myself because, you know, it's one and done. But I couldn't get one here in Tennessee, so I just went with the first one I could get, which was Pfizer. You know, so I think at the end of the day, I think all three of those will be represented in my family. Uh, and that's fine. I think all three of them are fantastic. And if you want, you know, if you want to shop around and get a certain one, go right ahead. That that's entirely your prerogative, and I think that's entirely fine. So, all good news on the vaccine front. Just keep encouraging people. I think it's great to see everybody posting their pictures. If you don't want to post your picture, that's fine. No biggie there. But I do want to, you know, just emphasize. Keep in mind what I'm saying here. The vaccine numbers are good. In fact, they're stellar. This is exactly where you'd want to be. This is These are exactly the numbers you want to see. And the results that we're seeing in people who are vaccinated are all great. So that's the main takeaway I want you to have from this. The vaccines are good, and we're seeing great results from them. So I'm going to take a quick break here, and then when we come back, we're going to talk through some media reports that have not been good. So it has been a week of just awful reporting on vaccines and COVID-19. And I I didn't, like I said at the top, I did not initially intend to go into a full coronavirus episode. I've only done this a few times, and that was when I thought there were topics that needed to be covered and go through them thoroughly. And this is one of those weeks, and it's not for good reasons. It's, It's for reasons that the media is falsely reporting on Stories and studies that don't say what they say that they're in them. So, and this has been one of the worst weeks for that. So, and the problem with this is that it is actively harming the thing that's going to get us out of this vaccines. The media is falsely reporting negative stories about vaccines. And the problem is that there's really only two reasons that you can give for this. The first one is that journalists are just dumb. They don't understand this topic. They don't understand the studies. And so they're pulling bad information out of these studies, going for clicks, and it's all based on their own personal stupidity because they can they they themselves don't like have the information to, to report on this, and their editors don't know understand it enough to be able to check it. That's your first option. The second option here is that they're actively pushing for any kind of negative storylines because they're desperate for clicks and eyeballs. And the sad story is that you have to pick from one of those two because these stories are so egregious that you can't just go with accident. It, it has to either be stupidity or a deliberate push for them to get money and from you know clicks and eyeballs. This is, these are clickbait-type headlines. And unfortunately, I do think it's a combination of both. So journalists, generally speaking, have no expertise in any topic. So when they try to pivot and talk about something which requires some depth of knowledge of math, statistics, science, or some specific area, they generally fall apart and struggle. I know this because as a lawyer, I routinely see news reports on cases that I have read, and it's very clear very quickly whether or not the journalist has read the case, understands the case, or knows anything about it. You know, usually within the first two paragraphs, whether or not they know anything about the topic that they're opining on or telling other people about. So this frequently, I know if this happens in law, it's going to happen in any other specialized area, and it's happening here. So I would expect some of this. If they are just bad at their job, you would expect some of this. The problem with that, you know, just being bad at your job, is that this has been around for a year. So the dumb journalist take 
is a little bit harder to swallow here because you've had a year to understand this topic. And there are plenty of experts that you can contact who will help you understand what these studies are saying. But the other side of this coin is also true. News organizations have been incentivized towards repeating negative news coverage of the pandemic because they are desperate for eyeballs and clicks. And one of the most appalling things of late is that the media has gone negative on vaccines. And I want to emphasize what I said in the other segment. There's not really any negative news surrounding vaccines right now. There's the one about the manufacturing staff with the Johnson & Johnson. But that's really about it. You know, you have some conversations happening right now about how good some of these, uh, these vaccines are around variants. But for the most part, those are all big unknown questions. We're, we're studying them, we're looking at them, but we don't know a ton. And we're still getting negative stories from the media. Now, remember, there was a study a few months ago about the news coverage in the United States, and it said that 90% of the news coverage was all negative, without regard of whether or not it was good or bad news. The media was spinning whatever news story they were covering in a negative way. Now, I think you're seeing this negativity for a specific reason, and that is because many of these, especially the cable news networks and any of these newspapers that rely on clicks, they have lost their golden cash cow on Donald Trump, and they've had two major cash cows pushing them along for the past four or five years. The first has been Trump, and he's gone, but last year they had Trump and the pandemic, which had people coming to them looking for information, and now, without Trump, they're looking at a summer here where the pandemic is very clearly going to come to an end here in the United States. And people are going to turn them off and stop going to their web pages. The pandemic cash cow is about to go away. Now, you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about how CNN and other left-wing networks had pivoted towards targeting Tucker Carlson and Fox News, trying to make these guys the, quote, new Trump, because all of their ratings had just plummeted through the floor. They were losing, some of them were losing millions of people. Their ratings were down. Their key demographics were down. Everything was down. Well, Trump was the one of the parts keeping them in business. The second part was the pandemic, because that is a need that people have to have information. And as more and more people get fully vaccinated, they have less and less reason to go to a news site to learn anything about these things, because they're fully vaccinated. There's no need to cover anything or learn anything about COVID-19, because you're fully vaccinated. That's probably one of those things that they're staring right here in the face. So the closer we get to this... Bizarrely, the more negative these stories are getting, even though that's not what these studies are saying. So you have them losing both of these stories, and I think it's incentivizing even more negativity towards anything related to the pandemic, including these vaccines. They've got to generate as much money as possible and squeeze every ounce of blood out of these rocks because not much is going to be left here very shortly. So the end of this pandemic is a cliff for a lot of these news outlets. They've got to figure out how to gen up more viewership because people are about to leave them in droves because what's going to happen here is Americans are going to say, okay, I'm fully vaccinated. I'm not going to watch TV. I'm not going to get on my phone and watch the news because I'm going to go do things. I'm going to go do things I haven't been able to do for over a year. That's coming. That future is months away now. If we want to, our current rate of 3.14 million vaccination doses a day, and if we didn't improve from that a single bit, which we will, it would take us three months to hit 75% of the U.S. population. And right now, it looks like we're going to hit that because there's no slowdown in sight. So for most of these news outlets, they're looking at this and saying, we've got three months here, and we're steadily going to decline. And I think you're going to see that more and more and more because they've got to figure out some way to get people to come back and talk about the pandemic. And so it's got to be, they've got to start knocking these vaccines to get people to be scared and not think that they are protected, when in fact, all the studies say, you're protected. So, I think you can watch over the next coming months, because I think there's probably going to be more layoffs and things like that, because they're going to have to start cutting costs here, because they're just going to lose that much money. Now, the three stories I want to touch on this week that fit into this just bad category of reporting. This is all mainstream. We're not going to go into any of the places. We're not going to go into MSNBC. We're not going to go into Fox. These are considered mainstream outlets. 
This first one was just a general thing. Everybody reported this wrong. And this is the, how long do your vaccination doses last? There were a lot of news stories talking about six months. And you may have seen them yourself. I had friends text me about this, and everybody was saying, you know, your vaccination doses will last for at least six months. That was the usual headline. Vaccination doses last at least six months. Now, that is not what this study was about. These were the six-month check-ins for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccinations. Multiple people read this wrong as they were only going to be good for six months. What this is, however, because that reporting was wrong, what Pfizer and Moderna did is they are keeping track of where people are with their vaccination doses over the long haul. So you have your initial time of three months. We now have the six months in. They're going to do nine. They'll do a year. And then we'll have all this information of how people are doing you know, so far out, and how your immunization, your you know, your the immunization that your body is building up, how that is doing over longer periods of time, because this is a novel virus. This is these are novel vaccination doses. We've never done an mRNA vaccination dose, so we've got to figure out a little bit of how long this is going to last. So what Pfizer and Moderna have done is they've said, okay, here's our six-month report. We checked in with these people. Here's what we learned about the virus. Here's our percentages. This is what we know. This is what we can project. All these are our check-in reports. This is not a statement of how long your immunization will last. This is not anything along those lines. This is literally a check-in report of them saying, here's how we're doing right now. This is what we're going to do moving forward. Here's the results that we have. It's not about how long. <laughs> in, in fact, the studies actually say the exact opposite. So we'll go into both of them here. So there's two reports here, the Pfizer and Moderna. So on April 1st, the Pfizer report came out. They started releasing their preliminary data from their phase one participants. Phase one through three, depending on how they, they were measuring this through here, but it was basically people that they had tracked for six months and what they had learned from them. So here are some, some quotes from the Pfizer report. They said, results from this analysis of 46,307 trial participants built upon and confirm previously released data and demonstrate strong protection against COVID-19 through six months post-second dose. From the 927 confirmed symptomatic cases of COVID-19 in the trial, 850 cases were in the placebo group. 77 cases were in the vaccinated group, corresponding with a vaccine efficiency rate of 91.3%, and they have about a 95% uh, confidence in that number. So it could be slightly higher or lower, depending on reward estimates. So again, they found nearly 1,000 cases of COVID-19 in their trial. 927 of those suckers were in the placebo group. The vaccine was working. They go on. 32 cases of severe disease, as defined by the CDC, were observed in the placebo group versus none in the vaccinated group, indicating that the vaccine was 100% efficient in this analysis against severe disease, as defined by the CDC. So they couldn't find any severe cases here. That's going to include your hospitalizations and other things. 21 severe cases, as defined by the FDA, were observed in the placebo group, and only one case in the vaccination group, indicating 95.3% efficiency, according to the FDA's definitions. So across CDC and FDA definitions, they've only got one case in their entire universe of vaccinated people who have what they can be termed a severe case, and that's... You know, I don't exactly know what this person had. I could have probably gone and looked it up, but that's typically your person who is so sick they either end up in the hospital or they're close to it. And they said that these numbers were generally consistent across age, gender, race, and ethnic demographics, and across participants in a variety of with underlying conditions. In South Africa, where that variant, where the South African variant is prevalent, and 800 participants were enrolled, nine cases of COVID-19 were observed, all in the placebo group, indicating vaccine efficacy of 100%. And they're saying that applies to the South African variant, which is considered the most dangerous here. So, instead of saying 
you know, that, you know, your your vaccination immunity lasts for at least six months. What they should have said is that there's hardly no cases to be found, and they can only find one potentially severe case in this entire universe of, of vaccinated people, which includes over 46,000 people. You've got people who are in the placebo group, and you've got people who are vaccinated, and all your cases and severe cases are coming in with that placebo group who does not have the vaccine. These are fantastic and astonishing results. These are literally the best results you could ever hope to see in a vaccine trial. It is hard to oversell how incredible these numbers are. But what did the media go with, and what did they run with, and what do people see because of how this was reported? Well, the vaccines are only going to last six months. That is the wrong conclusion to make. Now, you could pitch this on bad reading, but when you lead off your headline with vaccines for, are as good for at least six months, well, suggest for some, that suggests for some people that it might not be good for six months, when that's not true. These were the check-ins for the six-month period. We're going to have some nine-month ones here shortly, and after that, a year-long check-in. We're going to find out a lot about these people who have had, who are in these trials and then in real-world situations. Israel is cranking out practically a new study every day. We're learning all kinds of stuff. But instead, the media runs with the negative way to spin this, which is only good for six months. So that's the Pfizer report. Moderna sent their findings to the New England Journal of Medicine. Their top, the top-line quote from them, which basically sums every, up everything you need to know, Antibody activity remained high in all age groups at day 209. They continued, although uh, the antibody uh, teeters and assays that best correlate with vaccine efficiency are not currently known, antibodies that were elicited by Moderna persisted through six months after the second dose, as detected by three distinct serological assays. Ongoing studies are monitoring immune responses beyond six months, as well as determining the effect of a booster dose to extend the duration and breadth of activity against emerging viral variants. Our data shows antibody persistence and thus support the use of this vaccine in addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. Which is all you need to know. So we're going to get into this in the second second here, but Moderna has already built uh, potentially a booster shot that could be used to go after this uh, South African variant. That's what they've been testing. They've been doing it since about January or February when we start first started learning about it. Literally, these mRNA uh, manufacturers, as soon as they learn about something, they have the ability to, to immediately go in and start modifying what they have to see if they need to do it. Right now, Pfizer, well, I'm sure they've got an idea, you know, you know, if we wanted to modify it, we could. Right now, another data, their data says that they need to do it, so they're kind of sitting back and chilling. I, you know, Moderna is over here already testing theirs out. I think that is fine. I, I you know, good knock yourselves out. Their vaccine has also proven to be very, very effective. And so, instead of saying your vaccination dose is only good for up to six months, the headline that everyone should have read is that your vaccination doses are really still cranking at six months. We expect them to keep going. That should be your takeaway. Your takeaway should be these vaccines are awesome, and we're learning more about them every day. But instead, we got the negative spin. That's your first story. I got texts from that from friends. I had saw people posting about it, and it annoyed me for a solid two weeks here. So we're going to cover it. We're covering it here. So your vaccination doses are likely going to last much longer than six months, and I would expect them to last much longer than nine months because. The level of antibody response we're seeing from particularly the mRNA vaccines is very, very high. We'll learn more about Johnson & Johnson in the coming months, but from what we know right now, everything is good on that front, too, because in their early, in their early test results they had, they said that they couldn't even find any cases beyond two months. So when they submitted their information to the FDA, they just basically said, "Yeah, you know, we know what we are. Our efficacy rating after two weeks is about 67 percent. After the two month mark, we're not seeing any any cases at all. Symptomatic. I don't. I don't even think they saw asymptomatic cases after two months. So I think the more we learn about Johnson and Johnson, they're going to start showing the same numbers here as well. Uh, the, the second story, I'm just going to jump into it, I guess, here, is the South African variant and the potential for breakthroughs. So 
the South African variant, and, and they all have their own unique numbers here, and I could read them off, but it, it's just easier to use the country of origin here. There's been a lot of fear-mongering in the media about this South African variant. And of all the variants out there, it poses it does pose the most serious threat. It does appear to be uh, more deadly and more viral than even COVID-19, and COVID-19 is just one of the most viral diseases you're ever going to encounter. However, the threat is not what the media is saying it is, and not what they're reporting that it is. So this story comes from Reuters, whose headline suggested that the South African variant could break through the Pfizer vaccine protection. Even places like Drudge were leading off with this, and it was all based on this Reuters headline and anyone who was relying on Reuters as a wire service. Reuters has since edited that headline and the piece to say that, quote, the South African variant may evade protection from Pfizer vaccine, Israeli study says. Both of those headlines are false. And frankly, after reading both the study and looking at what the authors were saying on Twitter of this study, I don't even know how you could come to that conclusion from reading it. Buried in the, uh, the story that Reuters wrote itself, the receipt researchers are quoted, and they say, quote, The researchers cautioned, though, that the study had only a small sample size of people infected with the South African variant because of its rarity in Israel. They also said research was not intended to deduce overall vaccine effectiveness against any variant since it only looked at people who had already tested positive for COVID-19, not overall infection rates. So right off the bat... Any headline which goes towards the effectiveness of these vaccines should get tossed out the door. Because that's not what they were trying to do here. But that's not where we are on this. Again, so this study focused on the South African and UK variants of the virus, two of the most prevalent, both domestically here in the United States and abroad. However, the South African variant isn't that prevalent in Israel, which caused some problems for them because they were trying to specifically look at it. So in the abstract of the study, the authors concluded, nevertheless, the South African incident in Israel to date remains low and vaccine effectiveness remains high against the UK variant among those fully vaccinated. These results overall suggest that the vaccine breakout infection is more frequent with both of those variants, yet a combination of mass vaccination with two doses coupled with non-pharmaceutical interventions control and contain the spread. So what they're basically saying here is that, yes, you might see a few of these variants break through with these vaccines, which you would expect in any given population, but it still appears the vaccines are controlling the spread of the virus. So again here, I'm going to read off something here. This is from one of the authors of the study. They were on Twitter, and they said the following, and they described in their study and what they found. They said, we wanted to test what type of variant infects the very few vaccinated individuals who go on to become infected with COVID-19. To this end, we generated a case control cohort. Every vaccinated person was matched with a non-vaccinated individual infected with the virus. Two categories introduced us. One, those fully immunized, seven days post-second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. This was in Israel, so they were relying on the Pfizer one. Second, those who are partially immunized, and that is between 14 days after the first dose or seven days after the second dose. All in all, most infections in both categories were from the British variant. However, we noted eight cases of infection with the South African variant in fully immunized individuals, as compared to only one infection in the control group, the non-immunized people. Furthermore, focusing on the partially immunized, we noted more breakthrough by the British variant, and we think this might explain why, during the early stages of the vaccine rollout in Israel, it took a while till vaccination effects were noted and cases began to drop. To summarize, we see evidence for reduced vaccine effectiveness against the British variant, but after two doses, extremely high effectiveness kicks in. We see evidence for reduced vaccine effectiveness against the South African variant, but it does not spread in Israel. That last point there is key. They go on to say, we think that this reduced effectiveness occurs only in a short window of time. There's no South African variant cases 14 days post-second dose, and the South African variant does not spread efficiently. Thus, even more reason to get vaccinated and drive down cases to zero. So these are fantastic results. 
and it matches the Pfizer data, which we went over earlier, which showed no South African cases. So the Pfizer results said in South Africa, where the South African lineage is prevalent and 800 participants were enrolled, nine cases of COVID-19 were observed, all in the placebo group, none in the uh, vaccinated group. So, in other words, the Pfizer breakthrough story, as framed, is completely false fear-mongering. The window for a breakthrough here, for, you know, if you to get COVID-19 from one of these variants, is in that very short period of time when you've just had a vaccination dose and your body is just currently building up its immunity. So... These are very important facts and figures. And so the key here here also is that what they're saying is that vaccines are making it harder and harder for the South African variant to spread. Sure, you could potentially get it, but as vaccines are becoming more and more prevalent, that particular one, it, it's having a harder time spreading in a vaccinated population. The British variant can spread more easily, but it is not as deadly as the South African variant. So, and it also, it looks like it's also going to be falling into that period of time, that narrow window there. So, you have these situations where, yes, you've got to be careful for this first period of year. That's why everyone's emphasizing, after you get that second dose, give yourself those two weeks and then go about your normal business because that's giving your body that time to really kick it in gear with the higher levels of immunity, and then you're pretty much good to go. So that's the Pfizer. That's the Pfizer on any breakthrough stuff. Any new story you've seen that suggests that Pfizer, you know, it's, it's, it protections are evaded and anything that can happen on that front, those are just false. Those are just flat false. The Pfizer data doesn't suggest that, nor does this study. study. Yes, people were getting it, but not anywhere near to the level that these, some of these things are suggesting. So, you know, the, these studies also didn't go into Moderna. Uh, I, I would figure I'd touch on them while we're here on the South African variant. We don't really have good data on these yet because they're still reaching it. And on Johnson & Johnson, we don't have it at all just because they're newer. Uh, I expect more information out of them from the coming weeks and months just because they came in a little bit later than the others, so they're a little bit less down the road here than some of these others are. So Moderna, however, we do know is testing out a booster shot for this specific variant, and they've sent it into South Africa for testing purposes. And they started doing this in January and February. Now, what's interesting is that in South Africa, what we're seeing from researchers and from research around Moderna is that they tend to, scientists tend to think right now if we can solve this South African variant, that may provide the solutions for all variants. And this comes from a study out of Nature, and it was published at the end of uh, near the middle of March, I believe it was. So here's just some of the opening paragraphs here just to give you a flavor of kind of what they're talking about. And it starts out by saying, Penny Moore was one of the first scientists to show that the coronavirus variant identified in South Africa could dodge the immune system. So the virologist was expecting more grim news when she tested the immune responses of people who had been infected with that variant. Instead, her team found a ray of hope. The South African infection triggered antibodies that fended off variants old and new. That was a surprise, says Moore, who is based at the National Institute of Communicable Diseases and uh, etc. The discovery, posted this month, joins a slew of recent research suggesting that vaccines might cope with coronavirus variants of the past, the present, and maybe even the future. Quote, getting vaccines that will tackle the variants that are currently circulating is an, imminent, is an imminently solvable problem. It might be that we already have that solution. So what they're getting at here is that our current vaccines are good, but we, if we solve for this South African variant, what that could do is work backwards potentially here. So long story short, they, what they found is that people who got infected with the UK variant had a, a, an immunological re reaction to just really that strain of the virus and not necessarily a solid immune response to other variants. However, people who had a response to the South African variant also had a stronger immune system towards other variants of the virus as well. So if you know that, 
what you might do is tailor your vaccination response around the South African because that could potentially encompass the UK one as well. You wouldn't necessarily want to target the UK one if it doesn't also encompass the South African one. Now, we could probably work on focusing all of them, but just as a general idea, if you have one, if you can solve one of these that solves a lot of problems, you're going to, you know, you're going to aim for that one. So we've got these researchers who are working and testing out boosters and theories on variants, and we're far down the road in solving this. Uh, some, you know, interesting enough, some European Union countries are already talking about putting in orders now on these types of boosters, even though we're still, you know, very far out. They just think it's going to happen, and they don't want to trust on the U- European Union. So you have these individual nations trying to order their booster starts now. So, again, the South African variant is a troubling thing. You've got to keep an eye on it. But it's not something that I would say is a really distinct worry. It really does look like we have an answer for that now. So, you know, while this is all concerning, it's not the scary thing that the press is reporting it out to be. You shouldn't be hiding in your house from the South African variant. The last story comes from CNN, who apparently doesn't understand either vaccine, you know, efficacy numbers or math, just period. And I'm not being glib on that point. This story fall, fails on both counts in spectacular fashion. So CNN ran a story on what travelers should expect when they go back to airports and start flying. They inserted the following paragraph. Quote, In addition, real-world studies of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines show that they are only 90% effective against the coronavirus, not 95% as reported in clinical trials. Translated into reality, that means for every million fully vaccinated people who fly, some 100,000 people could still be infected. I'm going to let that sink in for a moment, because that is just unequivocally wrong. The analysis was wrong, the math is wrong, the efficacy numbers and how to read them are wrong, everything about it is wrong. I thought Philip Klein at National Review took it apart in just a few short paragraphs. He said, Translated into reality, a 90% effective vaccine refers to the reduction in odds of a vaccinated person being infective relative to somebody who is not taking the vaccine. That is, in a given group of, say, 2,000 people, if 100 unvaccinated people would normally get COVID-19, just 10 people who are vaccinated in that same group would get the virus. It doesn't mean that 200 vaccinated people would get the virus. For the CNN statistic to be true, it would mean that without the vaccine, everybody who flies on an airplane is guaranteed to get infected. That is, all million passengers in the scenario above would get COVID-19. This is nowhere near the truth based on the months of data from people flying before vaccines were even released. It's also worth noting that the vaccines not only prevent infection, but substantially reduce the odds of severe infection among the small number of vaccinated people who get infected. And the percentage of vaccinated people facing hospitalization or death is near zero. What's amazing is not only that this story was written by somebody tasked with explaining travel safety to readers, or that it even got past the editor, what's especially incredible is that the story was published on Friday and thus has been up for two days without correction. That said, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. For months, public health officials have been downplaying the effectiveness of the vaccine, sending the message that getting vaccinated should not change people's behavior. This is likely one reason why a recent poll found that just 21.9% of vaccinated adults believe it is safe to travel. And that's, you know, that's about all you have to say on that that story, you know, every word of what he wrote is correct. And I also note the following. According to the TSA checkpoints, there's about 1.3 to 1.5 million people traveling each day right now. So according to CNN's logic, we should be seeing hundreds of thousands of infections from these flights alone every single day. We are obviously not seeing that. And we're nowhere near close to being a fully vaccinated Society. So that scene and report and these other stories amount to, as Klein says, this bizarre negative tone on vaccinations. No matter what happens, they say, the vaccines just don't work. You're always in trouble. When in reality, no study shows that. If you read these studies, if you go through the ones that I've covered here, they are over 
overwhelmingly positive. Overwhelmingly positive. In each situation, the people who published them thought that they were good news. From start to finish, they believed these were good news. Yes, you have these concerning situations with you know certain variants, but even with that, the news is still positive. These vaccines are truly incredible, and they've done more to end this pandemic than anything else. That's the be-all, end-all right there. They are ending this pandemic. And the media is clinging on to this negative stance towards objectively miraculous cures. I mean, you can make an argument that the media stance on vaccines is closer to being an anti-vax position than it is a pro-vaccine position. Because remember what I said at the top, these networks are going to lose their second cash cow here soon in the next few months, and so they're clinging on this desperately. So you combine that with the journalist who's just not smart, because that CNN story is more than likely just a not smart story. It's somebody who didn't understand anything about this story with somebody in the travels part of of CNN who just didn't understand it, doesn't report on it. That's fine. It happens. I think they've gone in and tried to, you know, nix that that thing right there. But as as these vaccinations grow and they become more prevalent and we move into a post-pandemic world, the press is going to lose another chunk of its audience here. They don't want to do that. The Trump bump was real. The pandemic bump is real too. And it's all about to go away. This is all a good thing in my book, but it also means they're going to lose more money and more money and more money, and that's going to make them more and more desperate to cling on to anything they can here. I mean, they're still trying to make stories out of Donald Trump, even though I don't know that anyone cares anymore, and they're trying to fear-monger their way into making people who are fully vaccinated be scared and stay in their homes and watch the news. Even that, though, that's the exact opposite. If you're fully vaccinated and you hit that two-week mark with Pfizer or Moderna or the four-week mark with Johnson & Johnson, go out and do your thing. You are safe. Those vaccines are alive and kicking in you, and you are ready to go. That would be my my, my end point to you on this. Go get vaccinated and then enjoy the free life after that, because that's the pathway out of this, you can do whatever you want after you're fully vaccinated. That should be the message. It's not the message, but it should be the message. So that's all I've got for this week. Uh, the Light Item segment helped cheer things up here a little bit. It's from the TV game show Jeopardy. So Green Bay quarterback Aaron Rodgers has been hosting the show, and you may recall that the Green Bay Packers were bounced from the playoffs this past year. And on one possession, they made the very curious decision to kick a field goal despite time running down, and they needed touchdowns to win the game. So that situation happened to come up in the final Jeopardy this week, and one contestant decided to write a funny response. So here it is. Category for final today is daytime TV personalities. And a clue. Accepting a Lifetime Achievement Emmy, he said... Just take 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are. You have 30 seconds. Good luck. Come to Joe Beth on the end first. You were in third place with 8,400. What did you write down? Who is? No response there. How much will that cost you? $901, leaving you with 7,499. Over to our two-day champion on the end. Scott, did you come up with the correct response? Who wanted to kick that field goal? That is a great question. Should be, should be, should be correct, but uh, unfortunately for this, uh, this game today, that's incorrect, and you're going to lose zero. Thank you for that, and congrats on your two-day win streak. But the man in the middle, Brandon, could not be caught today. Did you come up with the correct response? Who is Mr. Rogers? That is correct. Longtime TV host and neighbor to so many. Let's see what you wagered. $924 to your total. You are the Jeopardy! champion today with $23,224. You'll be back tomorrow with me.
And thanks to all your great gameplay, I'm excited to announce that Jeopardy will be matching your earnings and donating $26,224 to the North Valley Community Foundation, supporting small businesses in Northern California affected by COVID-19. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you tomorrow. I can see it on the podium. <laughs> and I was like, please put something about the field goal on there. <laughs> <laughs> You will always be all time in my book, my friend. My first show, and that's what you said at the end. Thank you for that. So that's a pretty funny clip there of Aaron Rodgers. He was a, he was a pretty decent host, by the way. I thought he did a pretty good job. There's a, there's a fan push right now to, to make LeVar Burton of Star Trek and Reading Rainbow fame to be one of the hosts on Jeopardy. I think that makes quite a bit of sense myself. I think he'd be a pretty good host, relates to everybody well, everybody likes him. So that'd be a pretty fun person to have on there. And, I, you know, if you want to look it up, there is a writing campaign, so probably worth to do that. If you want to have him on there, it'd be nice to see his face doing that show. That's all I've got for today's show, though. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me. Link in contact information in the show notes, or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. So make sure to sign up for that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you'd like to enjoy it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.